Welcome to the podcast. My name is Chris Hall. This is the Peak Provider NDIS podcast. And today I'm honored to have Drew Beswick with me. Now, Drew is a fascinating man because he wears many hats as a CEO. Um, in the disability side of things, he's actually involved in three organizations. Um, so we've got, we're going to talk today about lifestyle solutions and possibility uh, primarily, and they're part of the Alliance 20 organization, which represents approximately 10% of all billings in the NDIS. So it's really you know, great today to, to have that level of conversation. And Drew's also involved in another organization in the SDA side of things. So before I go into any of the questions, let me welcome Drew to the podcast. It really is a pleasure to have you on. Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for that. And yeah, look, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and thanks for your interest. Um, looking forward to uh, the conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I'm a bit of a geek as a business coach. So I just love, you know, talking strategy, talking vision and how you get to these things. So um, let, let's let's go into it. So I suppose like, you know, with, with Lifestyle Solutions and Possibility, you know, the two large organizations, um, you're the CEO of both. What's it like wearing two hats across, you know, not just two brands, but two full operational units of business? Um, yeah, look, good, good question. Um, I, I think as much as the organisations um, have their distinct differences, I think there's a lot of commonality as well. Uh, these are two, I guess, modern um, not-for-profits in, in sort of the traditional sense, uh, non-aligned, so they're not um, come from any sort of faith-based background or the like, so very much... Um, been pursuing their mission um, and pursuing a, a really an agenda of human rights in all the work that they've been doing. Um, for Possibility, I mean, Possibility is a bit over 30 years old um, and started up here in Tasmania when, um, when the Tasmanian government was looking to um, close down the large institutions that, that were quite familiar across much of Australia at the time. Um, and so Optia was actually the company that was set up in response to that and, and took only um, a, a small small portion of services um, from government and tried to provide services for people in the community, um, largely people who'd been um, living in what was called Willow Court in New Norfolk at the time um, and um, really, really looking at supporting people with um, complex and challenging behavioural needs um, in the community. So, so that's kind of been the DNA of possibility. And, and as the Tasmanian government um, continued to build the community sector in response to, um, to their reform of disability support services, um, possibility just continued to grow. And so um, very much had a focus um, on, on sort of complex supports um, and specialist supports and really trying to um, build the independence of the people we support, um, as well as be a voice for, and a champion for change in the community. And that's something that we've taken really seriously through our history. Um, and with Lifestyle um, Solutions, um, again, another modern by, by sort of, you know, I guess um, any standard organisation that started up in Newcastle about a bit over 30 years ago again, um, but has a focus on working with um, children who can't be at home um, in the out-of-home care system um, mm -hmm. and it does some really important uh, work in that area as well um, and so has has more of a geographic spread right across Australia in providing those services um, and has really prided itself on working uh, with people in really challenging circumstances and trying to hang in there to make sure that um, that an outcome can be sort of sought. So, so, that, so there's some commonalities as well as some differences between the two organisations. Um, 
and you know and some great people and some great work happening right across them so um, whilst there's a lot on and a lot to do um, I'm very well supported by a really capable and um, and you know well-intentioned team um, and some amazing support staff right across the country so um, so on that level um, it's really really satisfying but like any any organization working in the current environment um, it has its challenges from day to day as well. Okay. So, I mean, I know that Lifestyle Solutions and Possibility are, are actually, I believe, coming together as one organisation. Okay, so that, yeah. that's really interesting me, to, to me. So you've got the, the deep history of Tasmania, 30 years old, and as the Tassie history, um, but then we've got Newcastle, and we've got, you know, and, and a different thing. Now, I know that, of course, as a person, as an, as an individual, you're bridging the organisations, but there must be something deeper um, as well that's bringing together the organisations. Now, the modern not-for-profits but, but what's the connection? Like, just for those that don't know, how, how did this, you know, this, this bringing together uh, come about, basically? Yeah, so, so we've been on both sides been um, thinking about what our place is in a, in a fully mature um, NDIS and human services sense. Um, and, and really, I guess, looking at the signals that have been um, coming out from the NDIS, be they pricing signals or other signals, um, it was clear to us that we we weren't really small enough to be boutique um, on either side. Yep. Okay. Um, and um, and and really to to be able to be sustainable longer term and to make the impact that we want to make in the community, um, we really needed to get to a scale that's going to enable us to do that. And I think okay. I think the evidence of COVID and the impact of COVID on organisations such as ours has really highlighted the need to make sure that organisations are really robust and resilient. Um, and I don't just mean that in a financial sense. What I, what I mean is there's really some depth and capability in the staffing team so that, you know, it's, you know, the old saying, you know, if someone gets hit by a bus, what do you do? Well, mm. well, in a, in a you know, really sustainable organisation, you should have the depth of the team that will be able to carry and support the work of the organisation. So, um, so there's, there's that aspect. Um, as, as we've come together, we, we've been integrating the organisations, putting together um, a single management structure and a single approach um, where it's possible to do so. Um, and, and so really going through that really sort of um, deep organisational design approach to make sure that those, um, those structures are in place to support the work of the organisation. Um, but at the same time, making sure that there is um, enough flexibility in those structures to be really regionally specific um, and tailored to the communities that we serve. Mm. Um, you know, there's that old saying that sort of goes around, you know, and try and think nationally, but um, act locally. And I think yes. that very much applies to the communities that we work in. Um, in some of the regional communities that we're working, we'd be one of the biggest employers in, in the town. And so that comes with a level of responsibility as well. Mm. Um, so it's about making sure we get that, that balance, balance right um, and ensuring the future sustainability of the organisation. Because um, really, I think what, what we're seeking to do is have an organisation that's owned by the communities that we serve. Mm. Okay, really interesting. Because I mean, because I do consulting, right? I, I work with providers of all sorts of scale. And what I notice is that even the providers that are on their journey to around, say, the five mil level, it's really common um, that they might even be just breaking even or have very small profit margins. So the reason I, I reference that is that it, I suppose it's really kind of healthy to see that, you know, your two organizations, you know, as part of even of Alliance 20 and being at that level, it's nice to see um, that, that you're taking that that how can we be lean so we can serve the community better attitude, right? Because I think that's so important. Like I see 
I see, you know, I know you're not for profit, but like, you know, surplus, I mean, whether it's profit or surplus, like, you know, having, having that additional fund, that's ultimately oxygen for the organization. And it has to be there. You're right for the long-term sustainability. Um, plus I think, you know, you mentioned the localization thing there. Like here's a, here's a microcosm of an example. If I was to do a Google ad campaign for someone, you know, I don't just say have a Google ad for Australia. Um, I want to have like something that's specific to the town. Like let's say, you know, you're searching for Sill. Let's search for Sill in Wollongong or Sill in Newcastle and make that part of the way that the the, the user, the participant, the nominee, the, the support coordinator experiences things. So um, I think that's really spot on that you can be national, but the localization, it's... Um, it's actually, it's kind of almost like linked to web design and the UX, like the user experience now, I think in our culture expects mm. that personalization effect of like, show me how your organization fits me. You know, that's kind of like, what, do you have anything to say on that in terms of like the personalization effect there? Yeah, look, I, I think you're right. I think, yeah. um, you know, when, when, when I think back sort of a few years ago when we were first thinking about um, increasing our scale as an organisation, we consulted with um, the people that we support and other stakeholders. And, and one of the things that was really important for people was to know sort of who was the neck to, to yep. ring, so to speak. Um, yep. You know, who, who do I need to talk to if things aren't going as I'd like them to? Um, who, who is kind of who is kind of in, in, in sort of in control or in charge of an area or this responsibility. So it was really important to make sure that we had that right because, mm. you know, in, in many of the communities that we serve, that they have really, really different attributes. Some of them are actually quite well served by other services. Transport's not an issue. Um, you know, access to housing is, is mm. easier than in some areas. Whereas other areas that we work, none of those things are very easy, and so and and so the very nature of what we need to do is quite different, um, and it's being really really clear about what they are and making sure that we're able to respond um, in a way that's you know really appropriate for the type of people that we're supporting in the communities that they live as well, mm-hmm. um, and you know Australia's a really big place, mm-hmm. and uh, and and right across the country people live in really different ways. There are lots of similarities, but there are lots of differences as well. Um, you know, and and the tyranny of distance is real in some of the mm-hmm. communities that we serve, and so we have to think about those things really carefully to make sure um, that where we are working, we can make an impact and we can um, connect people with the community infrastructure that's available. Correct, and that and that's it's beautiful because it because it truly you know links to the person centred philosophy of the NDIS as well, which is so crucial. Um, yeah. I'm kind of fascinated. I'm sure like, you know, you've got a roadmap, of course, at the at the level one sort of level to say, you know, what steps you need to do. So clearly the org design and managerial structures is one thing. I'm sure IT systems and trying to unify approaches is another. Um, just from a branding perspective, I'm not sure if you, this is something that could be publicly discussed yet, but have you made a decision on, you know, how that's going to work? Are you going to move one brand over to the other? Is it a new brand? Do you unify them? Like, how do you even tackle that question? That's fascinating to me. Yeah, look, it's a really good question. It comes up a lot, actually, in a lot of yeah. the um, consultation sort of mechanisms that we have. Look, I think the short answer is that we will have to come to a view on that at some stage. Um, mm. But whilst we've been going through integration, uh, what we've been focused on is making sure that um, that we continue to focus on the services that we're providing. We've got to raise a sharp focus on that. Yep. Um, and that integration can sort of happen alongside that. Um, part of the work that we've been doing, consulting with the um, people that we support and um, and also with our staffing teams, is really trying to think about um, what is the shared identity 
or the shared way of looking at the world across both sets of um, staff um, and, and how, how do people perceive us and want us to be um, perceived and viewed in, in the communities that we serve. And we've, we've called that out at the Our Beliefs Project and it's really thinking about, well, what are the things that we believe in that are common to um, the organisation, irrespective of whether your employment contract says you're at lifestyle or it says that you're at possibility um, because understanding that, I think, is the first real element before you can even think about branding and some of those other attributes. Because um, in my, you know, in my non-marketing uh, world, um, brand is really a reflection of the way that we act and the way that we are perceived and the way that we want to be in the community. And so I think it's important we're really, really clear on that first before we make some decisions around um, brands. Um, the one thing I will say about brands is possibility is not the first name of the organisation, uh, of the possibility organisation. It used to be called Optia um, and, and it was rebranded probably about eight years ago. Um, and I, th I think at the time there was a sentiment, well, what, you know, what, what, what's in a name um, and why would you change? Um, and some of it was about being uh, able to be recognised and, and have a name that was a bit more contemporary um, that mm -hmm. people might be able to engage with in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, but changing names is not not without its risks as well. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the, the reality is for some of the people that we've worked with, whether they've um, been living away from home because they can't live at home with their parents um, or whether they've been living um, in, in supported independent or living or the like, um, for a period of time, um, there is a connection with the name of the organisation that, that really needs to be considered and change change can be really challenging for people. And so, so if we do make changes into the future, we want to make sure that we're getting really good advice mm. um, about how to best do that, but also that we've talked to the people who would be important too to make sure we get it right. I love it. Um, so, I mean, the values-based, you know, con consultative approach, I think is great because it's kind of, you know, it's almost like the Apple Steve Jobs approach to, you know, being values based in the way that you, you you communicate your philosophy to the world, and and I think it's really enlightening as well that on this basically change management huge project that you're doing, um, that you're not taking a predetermined outcome approach. You're taking the consultative approach because it would be very easy to say we're going to do a two year project and this is going to be the way it's going to be, you know, and and kind of push your way through without taking into account all of the impacts. So that's that's really really cool, um, nice, very nice indeed. Um, okay, well, look. Um, let's um, let's talk about about some of the other things. I suppose. Like, what about? Um, let, let me ask you about because again, you, you're two organisations. You got all this change going on, and in the current climate, what would be the top challenges that you're noticing as a CEO in your role? What are the the, the kind of the common challenges that you're noticing across both organisations, and you know how does that reflect on what's going on in the industry? Yeah, look, I, I think staff and workforce yep. is probably probably a key challenge of, of many human service um, sectors, not not just um, disability support and out of home care. Um, and this is not a this is not a new problem. Um, you know, I went to to uni in the in the nineties, um, and back then I, I recall very distinctly uh, university lectures saying that there was a, a workforce challenge that was, uh, if not already uh, upon us, but certainly imminent and looming. Mm. Um, and, and here we are some 30 years later, and I think, I think we can all say that that's probably the case. Um, and there are a range of different factors for that. Um, you know, I, I think 
you know, we've got very, very low rates of um, unemployment right across the country. So I think, you know, that's just one of those sort of macro factors that makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think in, in our pursuit of sort of getting getting the scheme out really quickly and, and making sure that we're um, flexible enough to change to, um, you know, the... Uh, changes of the scheme and scheme design and policy and those sorts of things. Um, it has led, unfortunately, to an increase in casualisation um, across the board. Yes. Um, and, and the challenge is always about, well, how, how do you be um, person-centred and really responsive and flexible, but at the same time create meaningful um, and structured employment where people are really well supported and well trained? Um, and and I don't I don't think there's a magic answer to that. I think everybody will have their different approaches and strategies to that. Um, but I do think that workforce is one of the key challenges for our organisation. It's about eighty percent um, of all of the money that we spend um, is on is on people. Um, and so you know, good people equal good services in many cases. And and then you've got to add on to that good supports, good supervision, good training um, to make sure that people can succeed in that context. Mm. Um, I think the other mm. the other real challenges um, are that for a lot of organisations like ours that have um, transferred from ultimately being block funded by government into sort of this quasi market that we're now in, um, there's there's a real change that you've got to make to an organisation just in terms of business processes. Um, and managing your money, those sorts of things, which um, which means you've got to spend more effort on those. Um, and, and, you know, through the evolution of the scheme, that's become more and more complicated as we've gone along. We've had a few computer system changes, had changes to rules, changes to billing, um, and all of those have been a necessary evolution of the scheme um, as it sort of, as it settles in, given the scale of it. Um, but it does mean that we've had to spend a lot of effort trying to respond to those and trying to look into the future to make sure that we're not we're not blindsided by um, any of those changes that are coming down. And, and it's really our job to try and keep the noise away from the people that we support and, and our staff who are providing that support um, and also make sure we've got an eye to the future so that we um, make sure that we can continue our work into the future and be sustainable so so i think they're probably the two main challenges mm. um we've obviously got some important reviews coming up later this year with the uh, with the report of the disability uh, royal commission uh, as well as the independent review um into the ndis and i think they're going to be really formative in terms of um you know what what we can expect to see in the coming years mm-hmm. uh, it's a really important time now for the sector um, and for the NDIA and other key stakeholders to make sure we're working together because um, we have to work together to make this a success and it's really, really important. And I think, you know, if you think the last 10 years have been spent trying to get the scheme out and there have been some incredible results for people who weren't getting supports or are under-supported um, during, you know, prior to the NDIS, um, mm. this is our real opportunity to create something new and different with this second 10 years and, and try mm. and... Think, think beyond just getting the scheme out, but think beyond the value that we need to create for the people that we're supporting. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. And it's an interesting time of change, you know, annually as well, because we're recording this in July 2023, and we've recently had, you know, updates to the price guide. Um, so it depends yeah. on, it's interesting because like some things like support coordination, they didn't change, plan management didn't change. Um, but yeah. then the personal care supports, you know, community access, They've gone up by approximately just over 5% per hour in terms of billing. Shad's award for disability, approximately 5% as well. So that's interesting. Um, so yeah. I guess um, 
that's all strategically relative and relevant compared to other sectors such as aged care. So aged care got the long awaited 15% bump on wages that you know was long overdue. Um, but then it's interesting because there's like a bit of a comparative relationship between, oh, you know, for providers, like, should I do aged care or should I do disability or do we both do we do both? Like the business case is evolving. Um, and yeah. that, again, is very relevant. You're right amongst this inflationary environment, because, you know, there have been periods where inflation has been high, as high as 7 percent. So, you know, I just I literally just recorded a podcast with them. Um, great guy called Garth Bellick, who's got a company called Pay, Paycat um, and yeah. Paycat. Um, you know, they they do payroll solutions with the NDIS. And the, the reason I'm referencing that conversation is he made a very interesting point. He said, historically, the Shards Award might go up by about 2%, the price guide, maybe about 2%. So we kind of had this, this big bump up, but it's been necessary for inflation. And I think that wages are very relevant. Um, I do think your point on the casualization is very strategically interesting too, because I've noticed that. I was a director of a SIL provider in Wollongong time and time again. Um, people would say at the recruitment stage just say, can you guarantee me the work? And if you couldn't tell them, you know, even if you're offering them a casual position, you go, oh, we've got, we've got plenty of demand. We've got lots of houses. Don't you worry about it. I think, you know, or arguably rightly so employees are like, you know, show me, show me the commitment, show me the reliability. Mm-hmm. I've got a mortgage. I've got kids, you know? Um, so it, yeah, I do think that's interesting because I, I agree. There's not an easy answer. But gosh, there's a lot of organizations that I know many that are at, say, the, I don't know, 30 mil range that that are just purely choosing to do only casual, right? And mm-hmm. I do think any provider needs to be cognizant of the way the market's moving and always have the finger on the pulse because it might yeah. be necessary for providers that are doing 100% casualization to at least have a blended approach where they have some permanent part-time, some casuals, because I do my prediction is that I think that's where it's already at and where it's going to go. There's going to be a portion of the market that wants permanent part-time, even as a support worker. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have anything to say on that? Like, I mean, again, I don't know what your position is as an organization. Look, but, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think our preference is to have permanent staff or permanent part-time as far yeah. as we can. I think there's always going to be a component that you'll need to have in your workforce. It is casual, but it's not, not our preferred position at all. Okay. Um, and I think some of that is just, um, you know, the maturity of organisations in terms of thinking about workforce and, mm-hmm. and you know, and now we've got a bit of track record to be able to look back on patterns of work and, um, and be able to, I think, predict and determine how we can employ people permanently and provide yeah. provide more permanent work. I think it's important on a couple of fronts. I, I think the, the first is that um, for the people we support, those relationships are really critical. And, and I think, you know, having having a highly casualised workforce, potentially even using agency, isn't conducive to establishing those types of trustful relationships, particularly when, um, when we're working in a capacity building um, approach because um, there's an element of sort of... Um, of trying new things and seeing how they go. And you, and you need a really skilled workforce to be able to do that. But you also need one that's really um, got strong relationships with the people that they support um, and, the, and, the, and the support network around those people. Because ultimately, um, our goal for our work is to, is to make sure that the work makes an impact and that over time that we need to be doing less of it with the individuals that we're working. Um, and I, I just don't think that's as easy to achieve when you've got um, a more casualised workforce with people only partially engaged. I mean, typically in the sector, um, what you're looking at is that your headcount will be about half of what, the, about twice of what the um, full-time equivalent is. 
Um, and and I think yes. one of the challenges for providers is trying to get those two numbers closer together mm-hmm. um, and thinking about what's the best way to be able to do that whilst at the same time balancing those really um, real um, responsibilities about being flexible um, and responsive to the people that we're supporting um, in a way that suits their lives as well. Mm, Absolutely. And before my specialisation in the NDIS, I used to work in education. So I used to, you know, do e-learning and learning management system projects and that kind of stuff for the higher ed and the RTO vet sector in particular. And this 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 point on the permanent part-time or full-time thing, and um, that, to me, there's a link, I think, to staff improve, staff training ultimately leads to a better quality. Um, and, you know, if you can have permanent part time, at least rather than casual, I think that also fundamentally links to the traineeship opportunities, right? Because you can't get a traineeship contract for a casual uh, member of staff. You can get all sorts of wonderful schemes that benefit the employee from a, you know, from a training educational point of view. And of course, the business in terms of sometimes subsidized wages, depending on the state or territory that you work in. So, you know, yeah. if, if people, if the smaller operators that are listening to this aren't aware of that, you can sometimes get like 10% wage subsidy, depending on the, the, the yeah. offers that are out there, you know. Um, so like just out of interest to you uh, as an organization, do you do traineeship models um, sometimes with your, your employees? Yes, we do, although probably in a pretty limited capacity at this stage, but I think it is important. I think mm-hmm. one, of the, um, one of the things that's been on our minds is um, a lot of people who come into NDIS-specific disability support um, end up leaving. Um, okay. and end up leaving yes. pretty yes. pretty quickly. Um, right. And and I think to some extent, some of that's probably right. I think people are trying something new and worked out that it's not for them. Um, but I think probably the greater portion are leaving because they've not had a good experience and they've not been well supported. Mm. Um, and so it's really incumbent on us as larger providers, but any provider to make sure that we're bringing new people into the sector and we're providing them with really well supported um, and engaging um, entries into the work and, and showing them that there's a career there in front of them that has many different paths that you could take um, so that even if they don't stay with us forever, at least they're not lost to the sector um, because actually what that does is it just people people moving in and out of the sector just has a net negative impact on the sector generally mm-hmm. um, and what we want is to continue to build the capacity and capability of the sector over time and that that I think takes some stability and that's, that's up to us as employers to be thinking about that um, and making sure that we've got the right systems and supports in place to ensure that that happens. Very much so. And you know what? We talked before about user experience, the UX of, you know, our customer, should we say. I think that the UX of our employees is mat- matters even more nowadays. And I think about the generational differences. I just turned 40 a few months ago. So I'm, I'm a 1983 kid, right? And, um, and I'm, um, regrettably, I'm not quite Gen X. I, I identify as Gen X. I feel like I'm a Gen Xer, uh, but I'm technically a millennial. And that really pisses me off. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> But the reason I'm referencing that is that I think when it comes to, you know, say the um, the baby boomers, the Gen Xs, the millennials, and then, of course, you know, Gen Z and all the different like evolutions. Right. Each generation is literally looking for different things sometimes. But I know that when it comes to engaging, um, you know, younger generations, whether it be millennials or younger generations, um, it's more increasingly common to to, to change organizations you know, to do this and do that. So it's not an easy answer, is it, in terms of how much you invest? But at the same time. If you do an amazing job in terms of, you know, the the culture that you have and the systems you have, literally the experience of education and development and the purpose and the values, all the stuff that you guys are doing, 
that that I do think, regardless of generation, I think there's an opportunity to create a stickiness, you know, of commitment mm. to the organisation. Yeah, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think, you know, I think if recent past has taught us anything, many people um, have, I guess, uh, woken up to the realisation that purpose is, is actually one of the key reasons for coming to work. It's, you know, that the, the finance side of it and all the other things that come into it are really important. But I think knowing that what you're doing um, is contributing to the community, I think is really important. So I think it's about making sure that we can show people in a really tangible way how they're doing that through their work. Yeah, exactly. Gallup, um, one of the things that I also do is a Gallup uh, strengths coach thing. So it's like a psychometric test. It's like DISC and Myers-Briggs. And I know that there's a wonderful stat that they've got where it says, and this is based on like a study across 2 million employees. So it's very well considered. Um, it's that 70% of the engagement level of an employee is determined by the manager. So by the leader, right? So like, again, great people leading in the right way, not, not managing, leading. You know, that's all the the differences. So yeah, I, I kind of like, I think it's really exciting to see all of us evolve into this place. But I see it as like a higher form of consciousness, actually, to say like, you know, I don't want to just go to work and get a paycheck. I want to be led by a good leader and have a sense of purpose and have a good experience in terms of my day-to-day -day life, you know, and the companies that can provide that, those are the ones that will shine as well as doing high quality disability care, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really important. One of the, one of the things that we've been doing over the last 18 months is um, <clears throat> whether by design or just because it happened, I think what ended up with a lot of our frontline supervisors is that they were really good at working out how to deal with rosters, how to deal with NDIS plans, follow-up billing, those sorts of things, which which I think were important at the time, but, but not why we originally employed people. I mean, if you thought about, um, you know, a percentage of importance in terms of why we originally um, employed people, that would be pretty low down the list, I think. Um, um, making sure that good support happened and being able to provide coaching and mentoring to staff and and showing and doing and um, and being really available is probably really important. So um, we've we've really consciously changed the way that we're um, working, um, particularly in supported independent living, but in other areas and um, moving to a practice coaching model um, and using active support as as our sort of um, core model in terms of being able to do that. Um, we've been a participant in the um, longitudinal study that the Trove University um, have been running um, through Professor Chris Bigby um, for some time. Um, and so really this has been trying to um, give that some really deliberate structure. And the feedback we've had from people is it's great to be doing the work again um, and to be focusing on the things that are important. Um, and similarly for the people who are working in those teams, um, that real singular focus on, um, on active support and seeing outcomes um, has, has really um, made their enjoyment level at work really sort of um, step up a notch. So I do think... I do think there's um, a, a real skill in being able to give people the tools and give them the supports that they need to do good work and then to be able to see that good work happening, which is really reaffirming. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this, this is one question. You made me think of a question I wanted to ask you. Um, at both organisations, it's wonderful that you've got the coaching model approach, you know, to, to, to say the still example there. How do you, what are the mechanisms that you use to track outcomes for, for, yeah. for, for participants in particular? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of different things that we do. So we are part of the longitudinal study um, on active support, and so um, that's that's La Trobe University's team coming out and doing observations um, in support sites, and they 
um, effectively come into um, come into the home um, where, where that's been agreed and they make observations in terms of the amount of active support that's happening. Um, it's, a, it's actually really um, neat and quite um, simple measure really is how much is active support happening in any given hour and then you get a score um, from that and then you get sort of uh, mapped um, according to the others that are participating in that. But that's a really important um, mechanism for us because it is independent. Um, and the other part to it is that we know that active support, if done well, can have a positive contribution to the quality of life for people that we support. Um, so, so that's one way that we do it. <clears throat> the other way is we have a practice team um, who, uh, who sit separately from our um, operational teams um, and they undertake um, sort of uh, participant consultation um, programs within, within the organisation. And so um, what we're really focused on through that is trying to engage with people uh, where communication um, is more challenging and, that, and making sure that we can hear their voices in terms of how things are going. Um, and so that might take the form of, uh, of meetings in houses with the residents um, who live there um, with, with none of the support staff there so that we can get a real feel for um, their perceptions on how um, the support is happening, how the relationships are between, uh, between residents, those sorts of issues. And, and we can actively deal with some of those micro issues, but it also talks to, we've got some structured questions we use about how safe people use, how engaged they feel in terms of the teams that support them, um, how, how, how many times they're act accessing the community independent of staff. And so whether that's, you know, meeting up with family or friends or, or going to social groups or whatever it is. Um, and so that gives us a really clear insight into how, um, how people are um, perceiving our services and probably one of the most useful data sets that we have um, we then also have a um, participant reference group, which, um, and, and we're just setting up a second one, which deals with um, things such as when we might change a policy or when there's a change, uh, we, might, we might consult with them to understand if there's things that we need to consider or, or change in terms of the approach, um, but also to understand what's important to the people we support. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a good example. Um, some years ago, um, in, in possibility, uh, we had a leader at the time who was quite keen on the idea of fundraising for um, to support the operations of the organisation. Um, and so, so understandably, as an organisation that hadn't done that, there was quite a reticence from um, a, a number of staff in terms of, you know, what we do is not charity. People have a human right to be able to receive the supports they need. Um, and so let's not get the two confused. Um, and so we took that to the uh, participant reference group. Um, and it was a really, really, um, you know, useful conversation, and one that the board participated in as well, because... Um, it really got to the core of the issue about what the perception might be for the people that we support. And they certainly um, were very against being seen as, um, as um, the recipients of charity or fundraising or anything like that. Um, and rightly so, because they, they um, considered, as we do, that everybody has the right to, um, to receive supports to be able to participate in the community as, as anybody would. Mm -hmm. um, Notwithstanding that, they were also very keen on the idea that fundraising could be used for other things um, and it could be about um, setting up different programs like scholarships. It could be for about improving access to um, particular pieces of um, infrastructure and the like. Um, but I think that got, that got to the core of what's important in terms of that consultation group. And when it's mature enough in a way that it engages, you can really gain great insight into the things that might not be readily apparent and are really worthwhile hearing. 
Um, so I think that that's that's the other mechanism that we've got in place, um, and and we're really trying to use that in in different ways. So, for example, during the integration, we've used that during the integration. Um, and the feedback that we've had been invaluable in terms of tracking how we're going as well as adjusting plans as we need to um, mm -hmm. to make sure that they um, consider things um, that have come through that reference group. Um, and some of those, some of that input's been invaluable. It's about how we um, better support staff. It's about how we um, engage with the communities that we operate. Um, really, really high level quality. And I think that's in some part down to the skill of the people who are um, running those um, forums for us but also that sense of safety that people have to be able to share their ideas and opinions. Wow, love it. That's a very comprehensive ecosystem of, of measurement, of engagement. Um, yeah, and I think um, having that multimodal approach in terms of communication styles and you know the, the different verticals as well of the business, like, wow, that's, um, that's incredible. Um, I, I think that's, that's exactly in alignment with the philosophy of, again, of the scheme in terms of what's meant to be done. Like it's kind of making, we, if, we, if we assume that we're at the end goal already, then we're never going to improve. Like having such a great ecosystem, ultimately, I think that again, it's almost linked to the coaching mindset because I'd say that whenever I do coaching for people, we often uncover blind spots and uh, forgive me for using the term blind, I don't know what to be, but, um, but like, I guess I mean that in terms of like, look, are you aware of, you know, of, of that feedback? You know, you might be something completely left field where you go, gosh, I never thought of that. Um, and just be, and then also it, 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 that, that reference of what are the motivations of our participants versus the organization, because they have to be in alignment, you know, that perception mm -hmm. piece around the charity fundraising in particular. Um, Wonderful, wonderful. Wow, I'm, I'm quite blown away. I think that's absolutely fantastic. What an aspiration for all providers to be doing um, that level um, of feedback, basically. Um, yeah, look, look, and it's, it's still in development. I mean, we've had to change this as we've gone along and um, and certainly we're always always learning and open to new ideas. And we've, we've seen other examples um, where there's really great, great work going on. I think um, Achieve out of New South Wales have got this really um, neat program of um, quality champions, um, that go out um, and and undertake that type of um, type mm. of work in the supported independent living sites. I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can do it, and I think um, one of the things that we've learned over time is that you can't just continue to do something that worked for a little while. Yes. Um, that you've really got to keep changing and adapting as you go along because um, because people's needs and check preferences change, but mm. also the maturity of uh, um, of the participants and people engaged change as well, and they um, have different needs and different ways. That they can engage and add value, which is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And the quality champion is um, is an interesting point as well because, uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, some people see feedback as only related to compliance, but I think it's not just compliance. I think it's customer service. I think you, you're serving a community, um, you know, of, of unique individuals each time. So you've got to connect with that. You've got to take an attitude of we're here to serve, right? You know, we provide services. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. interesting. Now, now, you touched upon some of the SIL models there. And I know that you're interested, sorry, you're also the director of housing choices, which is a, um, a registered provider in the specialist disability accommodation area. Um, SDA is a, just a whole interesting sector in itself, right? And it's often very misunderstood by a lot of providers, mm. especially the new ones trying to get into it, right? Um, yeah. What What would you see, what, 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 are the, what are the trends that you're noticing and what, what direction do you think the SDA portion of the broader, you know, scheme. What, what what direction is it going in? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, there's been the the recent review of pricing, which I think has tried to signal um, where 
where the NDIA sees need and where, mm. where I guess it thinks um, uh, the incentives have been sufficient to be able to um, deal with some of the undersupply issues. So, so I think, mm. I think if you look at that, you'd say, well, um, there's probably an undersupply of housing that is um, focused on people who have additional needs um, and need sort of robust design. Um, there's there's a real absence of improved livability um, in a lot of the different communities that we work. Um, and for a range of different reasons, I, th I think, you know, price setting when you've got private sector um, sort of, um, you know, for, for profit um, providers coming in is probably one of the key drivers for them. Um, so, so I think I think you're seeing a bit of a settling of the scheme. Um, mm. I mean, as a provider, I guess you know we we have all sorts of SDA providers knocking on our door um, all the time, saying you know have we got a deal for you? We've just built you know four or five bedroom high physical support houses on one block at the end of a train line. What do you reckon? Um, and and with no real understanding of the people that will ultimately end up living in in the housing. Um, and, and I think that's that's probably destined to failure. Um, I think um, one of one of the key features of, of SDA as it is really for any type of housing is, is really a deep understanding and connection with the people that are going to live there. Um, these are homes um, and um, and the race to commoditize them I think has probably been um, not very successful um, in in some areas. And there are some great providers doing really great work. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a difficult area of work. I, I mean, these are people's homes, um, sometimes for life. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, where people are sharing or where they're going to live is really important. I mean, it's a, it's a really important decision, um, one that needs to be balanced against, a, you know, a number of different factors. Um, and um, and if somebody moves out for whatever reason and, and there's a you know a, a vacancy for one of a better description, mm -hmm. I mean absolutely there needs to be real care taken to make sure that the um, person um, who who potentially comes to live in that house um, has really good compatibility with the people who are living there and they've had a say um, in who their new housemate's going to be, um, and that takes some time um, and so. So as, as with all of these things, um, it's, it's about making sure that you understand the people that you want to serve. It's about making sure that the locations are, are appropriate. Um, and then it's about making sure that you really um, manage the property in accordance with the expectations that are set out um, because, because that's actually really important as well. So, so I, think, I think from a provider point of view, that's, that's what we notice. Certainly um, as, a, as a director at Housing Choices, um, I, I think, you know, our main concern is about making sure that there's accommodation for people with disability available in the market, in the community housing market. Um, some of that will be SDA, but some of it won't. And I think one of the, one of the things that we're grappling with is really about, well, well what is the mix? Um, yes. Because SDA has an additional income stream and, and that's why private investments obviously flock to that. Um, and that's that's an important component that may make it um, possible where land costs are high and other factors to be able to um, to build in those areas. Um, but there's certainly a real gap for people who don't need SDA but who have additional needs of accommodation. Um, and if you're on a disability support pension living in a capital city and you're trying to get access to housing, it's really, really tough. It is. Yeah. Um, and so one of the questions that we, we think about is well, how do we how do we work together to be able to um, to deal with that issue and make sure that there is available supply for everybody, not just those that have got SDI. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fascinating. Um, thank you for that insight. You're completely spot on, of course, about the person centred approach. And I think that 
look again because i do the coaching like i just all the time see newer providers going like oh yeah yeah, yeah. we're gonna do sda we're gonna do sda never done it before right you know oh my husband's a builder now i hear that you know husband's a builder we'll do it you know and um there's there's quite some unfortunately there's some horror stories in terms of like when when buildings are not built up to scratch in terms of trying to get away with like it's, it's pretty bad you know that that impacts mm. if you don't have the right fire alarm system you could be talking about the death of the participant you know in the worst case yeah. scenario like it's it's i think that it's crucial that only the best players are are actually in the sda sector um i do agree that there's going to be lots of sites doomed to failure um because of um for want of a better word there's an arrogance due to not you know being person centered basically I just think it's yeah. about property. Um, so, you know, th- that's definitely a thing. And the, t- the, the, the scheme does have great tools. Like the, there's the SDA uh, demand map, you know, that can say, oh, we've got these number of participants in this geography. Uh, this is the gap, you know, and all that stuff. But I suppose the other challenge is, is the time lag of physical construction, right? So you can, yeah. you can, in theory, have 10 people going, demand trigger, and they all jump in on the game. But they might, again, have that, lack of awareness of who else is jumping in on that geography um so again yeah. i know I, I know personally you know large great philosophy person-centered you know organizations that even them like i won't mention the company but like i i know that um, they've got challenges like build beautiful units and, and gosh you know there's, there's not there's not that ability to 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 align them with the participant because there's been an oversupply as well um so yeah i think the the building thing is interesting so I, I do think it's in need of a bit of a shakeup. I think that the natural marketplace, um, I guess, will do it of its own accord. You know what I mean? There's going to be places yep. that don't work out. Um, I think it's great that, that this this type of conversation is happening because I hope that might be insightful for people listening that are thinking about it. You've got to be so on your A game to, you know, to be really doing it. And I think it's quite correct that that parts of the funding, the rate ninety nine percent agency manage it should be like you know it's. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Okay, well, thank you. That's very insightful. Um, so, yeah, three organizations. You're a good plate spinner. I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, so let me see what else. Um, so in terms of, you know, you're giving some wonderful insight into the way that, you know, the three organizations are run. Um, if you were to, let's imagine you had a, a new provider sitting in front of you now. Um, like you've already given a, a great deal of insight, but if you were to kind of boil it down, what would be your top three tips for a, for a new provider starting out in terms of how they should focus on growing their business? Um, look, I think we're really being clear about what it is you want to do. What it is it you're trying to set out to achieve? Um, and mm-hmm. I think in the, in the not-for-profit space, that's pretty clear and apparent. I think, you know, it, it's about um, making a positive impact and in whatever way that that takes shape. Um, so I think it's being really clear about your why. Um, and then, and then I think the other challenge um, is is in thinking about the work um, as as more than just a commodity. I, I think the work is is deeply skillful, um, and to do a good job, it needs to be really skillful. Um, and so, so I think um, making sure that you come to it with the idea that this is a really professional um, uh, professional sector that is professionalising even more and that wants to make a positive impact. Um, so it's about being clear that that's the kind of environment that you want to work in, um, where where there's a lot of scrutiny and rightly so, um, and you need to be committed to continuing to want to improve. This isn't a set and forget type of um, industry because it's evolving over time. Practice models are changing. Um, the way that the communities that we serve are changing. Um, and so you need to be really adaptive and, and I think 
um, responsive to those types of needs. Um, and the other thing is, um, I'd say you've got to be incredibly resilient because um, sometimes, um, sometimes you can have a really good period of time where you're doing great work, getting good outcomes, um, and other times, for whatever reason, um, because humans are working with humans, there are issues and areas that you need to deal with. And I think the key to that is being really transparent and upfront. Um, and making sure that where there are mistakes, there's a, there's a culture and environment where those can be recognised and dealt with mm-hmm. um, appropriately because, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the care and the protection of the people that we support is, is a community responsibility. We can do our part um, and, um, and then the community needs to do their part. And so I think that final sort of part in terms of what I might say to somebody is, is, is recognise that we're not, we're not the only thing in people's lives. Um, and in fact, what we're trying to do is to enable people to connect with their communities and to build their own independence. And ultimately, the best outcome for that is that we wouldn't be needed anymore. Um, now, that's not always going to be the case, but it's our job to make sure that we can be as little as possible in people's lives um, and that their lives are their lives. Exactly. I love that. That's so sound. And these are the types of philosophical things that will make you stand out, right? Because there's a lot of providers that, you know, unfortunately might be tempted to do the bare minimum. Everything we've talked about in the podcast today is the thing that makes you stand out and truly do that excellence and service. So um, Drew, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, I know you've got a busy day ahead, so I'll let you let you crack on. But um, yeah, Drew, um, Drew Beswick from three wonderful organizations, Lifestyle Solutions, Possibility, and indeed Housing Choices. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you. Thanks, Chris. Love the conversation. Likewise. Cheers.